Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how's life? I'm doing right, uh, Alex. Uh, I, I spent 15 minutes on my Ring Fit adventure today, so I burned almost 40 calories. <laughs> you can have like six Skittles now. Good job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I hear, I will... hear someone... I hear someone is exercising a lot more these days if rumors persist. Yes. So the reason why we're recording a little bit later on a Thursday is that uh, my Peloton got delivered. And I'm very excited about this. Uh, you, if you're you've officially long, entered that crew. Uh, I've essentially entered middle age is how I think about it. Um, <laughs> but if you go back about 18 months on the show, back, back when Kate Clark was here, I used to always say that I wanted a Peloton. And finally, she snapped at me and was like, you can't just stop saying that. Well, joke's on you, Kate. I now have one. So ha. Uh, anyways, uh, today we don't have Natasha. She is on vacation. She is off the grid, not even tweeting very much. So hopefully she's getting a good recharge. Uh, and Danny, with that, we have a lot of stories to get through. This, this is one of those weeks where I'm like, every one of these stories sounded stupid and bonkers and like, this is the end of civilization. And then as we dug in, I was like, actually, maybe innovation isn't entirely dead these days. So I, I, I'm really excited. So let, let's start with something that Okay, this has to be the most ridiculous story. So you got to get through a little bit of the pitch here. We're going to talk about a company called Dispo, yes. which is a, a photo app that doesn't allow you to see your photos for hours at a time, Yes, which, which is a terrible explanation. It's, it's meant to re, I guess, reinvigorate the idea of the Kodak camera, the brownie camera from like, you know, the 1900s. I, I love, uh, by the way, that the Wall Street Journal described this as nostalgic features of, of disposable cameras. And I got to admit that I never had a disposable camera because I'm not 50. Hold but, on. But, Hold on. I, I've used disposable cameras. They were great. You took them on trips with you. That way you wouldn't bring your real camera. You could throw them in your suitcase. They were, they were great. They're like 20 shots and you could just bring them in and you get them developed by some dude who looked weird and there are your photos. But that was days later, not hours later. This is more like the, this was like the Polaroid thing to me. You take a picture and then you wait for it to develop. Um, or in the app sense, it's more of an anti Snapchat because Snapchat is your photos delete after a certain amount of time. This is, you can't see them until time has passed. Um, which is just dumb enough as an idea that I'm pretty sure it's going to be big. Like, that's my take about this. Because I thought Snapchat was very dumb and I was very wrong. So I presume that I'm also wrong about this, Danny, that it's going to be probably a hit. Well, I think, uh, so it's, it's founded by an internet star, David Dobrik, who I never heard of because apparently he's the Jimmy Fallon of Gen Z, as he's been <laughs> described in, again, the Wall Street Journal. Unfunny, but, uh, David, overrated, and in decline. And, and has 18 million subscribers on YouTube and is the fifth largest most watched person on YouTube. So that, that wow. to me is what actually is interesting here is this is actually an influencer play. Dispo or David's Disposable raised $4 million uh, in a seed round from 776, which is the new, new, new investment fund of Alexis Ohanian, um, who we talked about on the show a lot. He, he spun out, I guess, of his last fund, which he started called Initialized Capital. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently it was initialized and literally the past tense meant he was done. And so he moved on to creating... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't initializing, it was initialized and uh, founded this new 776, which is named for the Olympics. The uh, 776 BC is the first Olympics, uh, a nod to, I guess, uh, his, his um, child, um, who's named for the Olympics as well, his, his wife, Serena Williams, who's a famous tennis star, probably a little more famous than David Dobrik. But I, I think what's interesting here is the fact that, you know, using influencer and celebrity around social apps to me, is the vector to getting a new consumer app popular into the ecosystem. Yes. There's so much competition. There's so much um, noise out there. You're also competing with Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, all kinds of incumbents, TikTok, obviously, that this is actually a channel out because now you have a star. Last year, according to the stats, he did almost two and a half billion views on YouTube. 
five and a half million on Twitter. Huge, huge star. And and using that as the kernel to to build out a new app, to me, seems like the right approach in consumer. I agree with that entirely. If you think about how TikTok actually took off in the US, it wasn't based on just normal virality. They spent a lot of money on ads for a long period of time. I still see their ads on TV today, showing off TikTok, talking about what it is and kind of spreading the word. That's one way to do it. That is expensive, brute force, and uh, relatively hard. This approach, starting off with a influencer, less money, kind of get some buzz going. I think they had 2.6 million downloads since their launch in December of 2019. That's a great way to start. Now with some more capital, they can build up the product, do a little advertising, throw some more money to some influencers, get more folks on the platform. It, to me, it makes a lot of sense. And, and $4 million really isn't a staggering amount of money. It's a I, I thought it was amount. crazy. I, I actually saw that and then I, I read about the founders and what's going on here. And I was like, wow, what a deal. I, I mean, maybe the valuation was super high and, and therefore there was like no dilution. But to me, $4 million to, to play with a, a kind of a new format, uh, a star who's going to you know drive a lot of early marketing, it, it, it to me is a no brainer. So you know, on top of, uh, of 776, we had Unshackled Ventures, Shrug Capital, Weekend uh, uh, Fund, and the Chainsmokers. Who, who apparently are invading our inboxes every single day. I, 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 they seem to be very active investors these days. Yeah, they really are. And I think that kind of investor is kind of a celebrity hook. Like they throw in some small amount of money and then their PR firm for the round gets to say, and the chain smokers are in it. And they get kind of dangled as, as, a, as like a hook. I, I view that as kind of an anti-signal personally in my <laughs> inbox. Like <laughs> whenever they're like, and there's an NBA star ready to talk to you. I'm like, nah, probably not. And I also, I think, now, now I don't care. Uh, but talking about chain smoking, hourly workers. So we, we have another startup today. That, <laughs> That's the that rudest my... <laughs> segue I've ever heard. Like, yeah, well, they don't make a lot of money, so they must smoke. I'm Danny Crichton. I'm an elitist bastard. <laughs> We're talking about Zira. Um, so Zira is it's sort of a shift scheduling service that's designed to improve, I, I guess, the, the automation of shift scheduling for a lot of um, you know, in-person businesses, retail, et cetera, um, raised a, a 3.1 million seed round uh, from General Catalyst and Abstract Ventures, um, which is interesting because I think Abstract, uh, isn't that the AI fund that's focused on sort of AI applications? Probably. I mean, there is an AI component to what Zira does. I think, and I'm pretty sure it's Zira, not Zira. It's Z-I-R-A dot AI, if you want to look it up on the internet. Uh, what they do is they kind of like take everyone's like shift scheduling needs and let kind of their algorithm put together who should work when, and therefore, hopefully, it's less biased. Because instead of having the manager that you report to do this for you, they may have favorites, they may be sexist, they may be, you know, racist, I don't know. Letting an algorithm set schedules may have some strong kind of in-market fit. It may help individual workers, which is cool. And there's a little bit of an AI component. It's also kind of a no-code component. There's an automation feature. And so what you can do is you can set up like triggers. Like if someone doesn't show up, then call someone else and have them come in or like, you know, give a reward to the person who has the most on times or the most to show up for work this month. And so there's kind of some lightweight features that let people who don't code set up neat events inside the service, which to me is kind of a nascent, no codey feel, which I know is kind of a buzzword, but I'm always looking for startups that fit into different buckets. And so to me, uh, I love seeing a startup focus on uh, non-information workers. I love seeing some uh, AI in there. I love seeing some no code stuff in there. And, you know, with General Catalyst in a $3.1 million seat catches my eye. You know, that's not a large check for them, but they're taking the time. So they must see something they're very excited about. And um, I thought it was cool. So I wrote about it. Uh, I, I agree 100%. I mean, look, there, there have been a lot of companies that have tried to do stuff in this space. It has been controversial. You know, shift scheduling 
used to be much more regular. Uh, a lot of major retailers got into a lot of hot water in the last couple of years because they were trying to over-optimize their shift schedules. So mm -hmm. they would cancel on people 10 minutes in advance of a shift, right? To optimize, particularly in retail where the margins are really tight. You would show up at, at a particular retail store expecting to work that day for eight hours and literally the company would cancel in seconds before you were supposed to go and say, no, we don't have enough customer traffic today based on our, you know, AI driven vision camera system. So, you know, the hope here, I think, is is it's a little bit more talent focused. It's a little bit more focused on the workers. It kind of gives everyone a little bit more of a fair shot. And hopefully it's a little bit more regular. You know, the question is, is, is that's a competitive space. There's a lot of incumbency Definitely. there. And, and it's a lot of incumbency with big HR payroll and workforce management solutions. So it'll be interesting to see how they, they break into the channel. Yes. Um, but that's actually, I think, the story for the next company we're talking about, which is also a hyper, hyper competitive space, a company called Shogun. So Shogun is not just the name of Trivium's best album, if you're a heavy metal fan. It's also the name of a cool startup that's building what I think of, Danny, as like the, the website layer on top of the major e-commerce platforms. So we've talked a lot on this show about big commerce. We've talked a lot on this show about Shopify. These are in, and also, I think, Magento, Magneto, one Magento, of the two. Yeah. Magento, yeah. And these are, these are companies that will help you sell stuff online. But Shopify doesn't have infinite templates that you can use to build a website. So if you want to look professional, if you want to stand out, if you want to be a serious brand on the internet, but still have your back end handled by someone who does that for a living, aka Shopify, big commerce, et cetera, then you probably want some help. And most companies, this will blow everyone's mind, don't have really great in-house web dev studios. So Shogun wants to fill that gap, help larger brands do very well on, online with the back end provided by someone else and them handling the front end. And I think it's kind of brilliant. And they raised a $35 million Series B led by Excel. Excel, not full of idiots, full of smart folks as far as I can tell. Initialized Capital took part, VMG Partners as well, Y Combinator. So it's, it's a lot of money in a space that's doing very well. And as we know, via BigCommerce's IPO and Shopify's uh, share price success, enormous demand in the market today for this sort of product. I, I think it's been very successful. I mean, and one of the interesting things, it's not just a front end, right? It, that, that's sort of the basis. You have templates. But what's interesting is I was going through all their product space, uh, pages and, and trying to understand what they do. A huge focus is on optimization, right? Automating a lot of the A-B testing, figuring out what works, what works in the channel, and then sharing that knowledge across other retailers. So to me, what, what, what's fascinating is, you know, Shopify is a back end, but it also is a front end. It also offers the, the, the front end experience on the shopping. But those templates are limited. And you certainly get more limited as you're trying to optimize, check out your, your product pages, your, your blog posts, etc. Shogun wants to be the one-stop shop for website development plus kind of the analytics side as well. And so, it's, you know, obviously it's doing super well. So according to the numbers that were published by the company, 182% business growth year over year. 15,000 companies now using it, up 5,000 in just the last eight months, just since the beginning of the, the pandemic, pandemic exactly. uh, at the early of the year. What's nuts here to me is that the company has basically no sales and marketing costs, which, which you know, according to the company, they have literally a marketing team of two and two salespeople. And, and you know, we didn't independently verify that. But to me, you know, as someone who's talked about s and in the, in the sales and marketing context, uh, specifically, to be clear, ah, the, the okay. s and in that world, uh, quite regularly uh, on TechCrunch, you know, it's, it's amazing to actually see a company that has that kind of organic growth, particularly with the kinds of businesses that need this, right? Like where, where the sales and marketing is very high, but the, but the ticket you get, the, the actual total contract value for these companies is actually quite low, right? So that's the magic sauce, I think, to a lot of, you know, the small, medium e-commerce retailers. As in have a very low cost to require customers because that can match your ACV or average contract right. value. That's and therefore exactly the equation right. works out. So because Shogun has only four people in sales and marketing, they're not being uh, extorted by their sales and marketing expense. And therefore the economics probably work out 
if you add 5,000 new customers or users in eight months with four people on staff doing the sales process, you're crushing it. And so that's probably why they raise the money. I'm, I'll be curious to see if they invest some of this 35 million into more sales and marketing, probably will to some degree, but certainly they're on something really neat here. And I just love seeing tools built that small businesses and medium sized businesses can use to look better and compete more fiercely with larger companies in the world and market. That's encouraging to me. I think that's, I, I, I think that's a huge part of, you know, competing with Amazon, right? You know, when I go to my local businesses, I actually do buy online from local businesses in my neighborhood, so to speak, even ones that are just down the street. It's actually oh, yeah, oftentimes yeah. easier, whether it's books or tea or whatever. One of the interesting things is like their websites suck. Like, I mean, there's just no way around it. You know, they don't have the, the technical talent on staff to optimize a website for flow. And so going from an Amazon experience where it's like, this is so fast, pages load in 100 milliseconds, it's amazing. Right. You know, I, I go to a store locally to here to search and it's like a 10 second, you know, flywheel with the, with the you know, ball Spinning, going on, on yeah. OS 10, now 11. But I, I think, <laughs> <laughs> see, everything in life changes. You know, innovation Ugh. is actually happening. But I, I do think that giving, you know, SMBs, that level of professional tooling. It's not just a, a strikingly page or a Squarespace, which is great, you know, a static website, you know, to put your stuff on the web, but actually optimizing those pages to drive sales yes. gives them, I, I wouldn't say a competitive edge, but it allows them to catch up to where the technology is for the biggest players. One, I haven't heard the word strikingly in a long time. I, I recall the exact company you're talking about. That the, the, the flowing pages you could kind of scroll down mm -hmm. through, if mm -hmm. I recall, those were great. I love those. What happened to that company? Didn't they raise money back like five years ago? I feel like they raised money. They're somewhere. Yeah, they did. Uh, if you're on the Strikingly team, email us at uh, equitypod at techcrunch.com and let us know if you're still alive because we're curious. Um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not a diss. That's an actual, I, I'm legitimately curious. Sometimes these website building companies get huge and we don't know about it. Like Wix is way bigger than I thought it was. You know, So I think there's space in the market for Strikingly to do well. Maybe they're huge and now we look like assholes. You never know. Uh, let's move on to uh, one of the bigger rounds of the week, which was Uncork, which is U-N-Q-O-R-K's. Uncork. I think it's pronounced uncork, but we can call uncork if you want. $207 million Series C. This round caught my eye for two reasons. One, it was a lot of money for a no-code focused business. And I'm keeping my eyes on that space because it's very hot and active these days. And also they raised a bunch of money earlier this year, adding $51 million to a Series B that became worth $131 million total. So lots of capital going into the firm, now valued at $2 billion after this round led by BlackRock. And essentially, it's the same thing we've heard from Appian and other companies this year, which is that the demand for custom business apps is big and growing quickly. And the gap between the number of developers who are active and the number of developers needed to build all those apps is large and getting bigger. And so no code services like Uncork that lets you kind of like, you know, move stuff around and plug and play and make your own custom app is growing. And I feel like after a couple of years of no code being treated like a sideshow joke, it's uh, there's enough growth in the space now to really make some big companies and, and show that the demand is material and it's not just hype, if that makes sense, Danny. I, I think the market has just gotten crazy. I mean, you and I both get no code funding announcements, I feel like on an hourly basis. It, it looks a bit this way. No code is my new blockchain in terms of like keyword filters uh, in Gmail. Uh, but what's interesting about this one, I mean, it can get very confusing, frankly, because there's frankly dozens of companies that have raised serious amounts of money in the no code space. What I think is kind of the angle that I could pick up on Uncork, the CEO, Gary o uh, Hoberman, who also founded the company back in late 2016, early 2017, is actually like a lifer in a lot of insurance and, and financial products. So he spent 16 years at City, four years at MetLife before starting the company. And so my guess is, is he's actually coming straight from 
the kind of custom business application wings of these companies knows what sells into these markets, knows what the you know folks are looking to buy. And so he has this competitive advantage compared to a lot of the other more Silicon Valley product-focused companies where it's like, here's this cool whiz-bang kind of feature. How the <laughs> hell do I even use it? Well, right. you know, he on the other side knows exactly what people are trying to build, right? Yeah. And so I can imagine that as a product, certainly their product page is nothing like Shogun's. I mean, <laughs> it's actually kind of amazing uh, comparing Uncork's kind of miserly and miserable product page to, to uh, uh, Shogun's beautiful, gorgeous, animated widgets. But on the flip side... If it looks ugly, it's probably a good custom business app. Yeah, yeah. If uh, if you don't like what Danny just said about your product, don't email me. <laughs> email Danny. I didn't say it. Um, <laughs> going, so I wrote about this round because I've been tracking the space. And um, according to the CEO Hoberman, they had raised their revenue targets before the pandemic. And that's, I think, why they raised the second kind of Series B tranche of $51 billion. I think, and they said that they've not changed their course. So they're going to hit their raised guidance for the year. Um, so the round doesn't surprise me. I want to know how much they're going to kind of beat that by. I'm curious what the, the growth numbers are. They didn't give me any uh, revenue figures, sadly, but certainly it, it's just a rapid growth profile and capital G led the series B. So there's a lot of kind of institutional money uh, to play with here. And to cap this off, because I know we need to move on. Danny, uh, you recall the, the T, T, T2, D3, triple, triple, double, 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 that kind of rubric for startups in which you need to kind I of I remember the rubric. Those. I didn't know we had acronymized it. Acronymized it. Yeah, I, yes. I I thought it was I thought it was T. We didn't. Maybe was it, well, did I do this alone? You, you, for, I think I don't know, but it's great that we have it now. Okay, and I bring I bring that up because Uncork is on track to triple for the third year in a row. So it's actually ahead of the T two D three. It's gonna be T three D something. And sadly, we don't know hard revenue numbers, but certainly that's the kind of growth that makes investors very excited. So. That explains the brown and the space. And it sounds like they're going to uncork a wine bottle here shortly. I thought you were going to say like uncork a new era of growth. Yeah, exactly. I I, Some I sort of millennial, millennial line. But let, let's, uh, let's move on to another company where it sounds ridiculous. This, 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 this is a ridiculous company. I don't know if it's more ridiculous than photos you can't see for 14 hours, but it, it's something <laughs> in the sort of same category. That's going to be big, Danny. We're, Stop we're being now, a miser. We are already returning to mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. spelled because we have to kind of spell it M-M-H-M-M, mm-hmm. which is the, the Phil Libin Zoom background startup. So if you remember a couple of months ago, we actually talked about it when they had raised $4.6 million led by, by Sequoia. And, you know, essentially it's trying to do a, like a, a Saturday night weekend update or sort of any sort of newscast style where as you're presenting on Zoom, you can sort of create chirons and other, you know, uh, you know lower thirds uh, in your background to be more professional and be able to explain like, hey, this is what's going on, like similar to a weather forecaster on your local news. What's nuts is the company's just raised $21 million in a Series A, also led by Sequoia, Roloff Botha, just a couple months later down the line. Roloff Botha famously owns many Teslas, if you recall uh, an earlier episode of the show. Um, the $21 million is actually $31 million in total. There's another $5 million for all turtles, which is kind of Phil Ibens, like uh, kind of like startup studio, for lack of a better phrase. And also uh, there's 5 million in debt from Silicon Valley Bank. So a lot of major players showing up here. I am, let's go ahead and say unsurprised to hear that mm-hmm, managed to raise more money because we know there's a lot of demand for them. There's a wait list of 100,000 people who want to take part in it. I think I'm one of the people on the wait list now that I say it out loud. I think I signed up for that. But the, the question here, and the thing we want to talk about is the valuation. My friend over at Forbes, Alex Conrad, a uh, lovely guy, said that it's around $100 million, Danny, but you had a slight quibble with that. Well, I, I, I was just pointing out that Alex Conrad wrote 
likely values mm-hmm, in the ballpark of 100 million and and likely values in the ballpark as a phrase is, is a good a fudge to say i don't think we actually know what the valuation <laughs> of the company is so I, i'm guessing he's guessing you know that's similar to clubhouse's valuation from earlier this year at 100 million i, I think we've seen some other consumer plays at this point i actually thought it sounded low um low, I, okay. I, I, we don't know I, I have no more information than i think anyone else does clearly but having raised 31 million now phil Liven, is a multi-time entrepreneur. He runs a startup studio, uh, as you mentioned, All Turtles, which we learned from the Conrad piece has actually, this is the seventh project to raise funding since March out of All Turtles. And it's the second to fully spin out. Phil Libin clearly doing the ADHD startup model here over at his startup studio. And it's also raised money from the the chain smokers. So the second investment, they're both in the both ridiculous deals that we've had this week. Uh, They were also in Dispo. So to me, I actually thought the valuation was likely higher, higher, but we don't know. Uh, but the chain smokers are super active these days. I don't know why they're in this one, but the good news for you and I, Danny, pop culture aside, is that the consumer launch for mm-hmm should be in October, which is this month. So finally, we should actually get a chance to use this product, get our hands on it, play with it, and see if it is worth, well, $100 million, $90 million, or $200 million, whatever actually the, the dollar amount is. I'm excited. You're right. It is October. I didn't even notice that. I was like, oh, it's coming in October. I'll, I'll look forward to that in a couple of months. And I just, <laughs> it's October uh, 8th. It's here. Yeah, um, it's, so looking uh, forward. <laughs> to time time mm-hmm. does that. Uh, in the same space, though, there's another company doing similar-ish things uh, this week called Remotion, which has raised $13 million. This was led by Greylock. I think Sarah Guo led the round. She's been on the show. She's super smart. The seed round was in my first round. So another kind of series, sorry, not series, a, um, A-list group of VCs are backing this company. And this is a little bit different. It's not kind of what Mm-hmm does, which is a, a background lets you do, do kind of cool stuff inside of Zoom. It's a service that's designed to let you have, uh, I would say, better and more easily put togetherable chats with your coworkers. So inside of Promotion, if I understand the product correctly, you can mark your little bubble as like available to chat or busy, and then you can just quickly jump into chats with people based on their status. You can have more like relaxed hangouts and chats with people in your team like you would have in the office, as opposed to formal chats that are, you know, via Zoom and are on the um, on the Google Calendar and so forth. I, I really like this idea, and it comes, you know, really quickly around the same time as Slack announcing that it's putting together the the water cooler audio feature inside of Slack, so you can have these like ambient kind of like ongoing hangouts inside. And so I think what we're seeing, Danny, is people trying to reconstitute the good parts of being in an office: spontaneous conversation, camaraderie, and friendship inside this remote digital first world that we live in. And I think it's kind of cool, but I'm curious, you being the show's uh, curmudgeon and uh, misanthrope, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I, I, I think, um, well, Slack, Slack originally told us, I mean, here's some fun backstory. Slack originally told us that they had experimental video and audio features that they were launching and they decided 24 hours later not to make it experimental without telling us. Uh, <laughs> so that was a fun little uh, mistake on their uh, comms part. Uh, this week that we all got to deal with. But no, I, I actually think remotion is actually a really smart idea because I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges with being remote is 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 the lack of spontaneity. Everything is scheduled. It's very similar to friends too. You know, as you get older and you have kids and oh, wives and, and partners, you, you get into the situation where, where you you always have to schedule everything weeks in advance. You know, I, I just had a scheduling, someone just offered times in 2021 to me. And I was like, I'm not thinking about that year because I'm not even sure this year is going to like, we're still going to be alive at the end of this year. And so to me, I think it's a huge opportunity to just be like, I'm here, I'm available, pop in, say hi, leave. You know, there's a little bit of, um, I guess, social etiquette and social norming that's going to have to be involved in this, right? Like, how long do you stick around? Do you just keep bugging people? Like, how often do you, you know, 
slip into their DM, so to speak, um, or slip into their video stream, um, which sounds which far worse. Way more aggressive. Like sounds DMs like are... OnlyFans. It's OnlyFans for the workplace. No, uh, don't, say, don't say that. Again, <laughs> Danny do... said that. Send him the emails. Spare me. <laughs> but I, I do think that there's a huge opportunity to make this stuff easier. And and Slack has tried to prioritize it. But I got to be honest, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Slack's audio features. Like we've tried to use some of my colleagues try to audio me. And for some reason, they never come through. It's always garbled. And it's actually a terrible experience. So I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm long-term bullish on Slack, personally, because I think they have a really solid CEO, a great user base, and a product that we're all stuck in, and they'll figure it out in time. I think Remotion is cool because they're doing kind of a different direction on communication. My beef, though, if I get to have a complaint, is that I think Remotion is still Mac only. And uh, what? Do you not use a Mac? I mean, I only use a Mac because that's what Verizon Media Group makes me use. But like, I, I grew up on You can use a Windows P- laptop. We, we, we have IT. You can use Windows if you want. I don't, I don't really have an office to go to. Like it's in Boston. I'm not going to go to Boston to get an IBM laptop. But the point is, why is it Mac only? For the love of God. PCs I, are I, still the majority of the market. Make a PC product. I, I think it's about taste making. And uh, you, you give the, the smarter users uh, access first. This is called um, Danny winding me up. And I'm not going <laughs> to fall. I'm not going to fall for the bait uh, in this case because I've matured since the last time I fell for it. Uh, anyways. We have a new section of the show this week because we have a lot of stuff that we just kind of need to talk about, but we didn't want to make a big deal of. And so we're calling this the first ever equity cleanup. We're going to start with the SPAC because we're throwing out the trash. Yes. Or more optimistically, we're recycling. Uh, that is optimistic given how that's changed via China and the regulations around recycling in the last Nothing years. gets recycled anymore. Everything no. just goes to the trash. Yes. It's a big lie. You've been <laughs> lied it makes to. you feel good. That's exactly <laughs> what this segment is trying to do. So the first thing we're going to talk about is, is a SPAC which is, which is a good uh, version of capital recycling. But Firstmark filed a couple of weeks ago, and I guess we had an interview with our, our colleague, Connie Loizos, interviewing Anish there. Firstmark Capital is now, I think, the first VC soup to nuts, you know, seed, the earliest seed to a full SPAC reverse merger kind of setup fund out there. So they, they raised a SPAC of, of $360 million. They actually upped their target a little bit. And it's going to be interesting to see how they play in that world in the coming weeks. I, I, I'm curious what your take on this, Danny. As a former VC, and I don't say that as a pejorative, I say that as someone who's kind of had their head in that particular bucket, are, are VCs now trying to do too much? Because in my, in my humble view, if you are specialized, you get very good at one thing and you can do a, a good job of it. And if I was a founder looking for someone to help me raise a Series C, I would look for the investors who made the best Series C deals. I wouldn't look for someone at the seed stage who could SPAC me when I'm going public. I want an early stage investor who's very good at like, company creation and helping me start building a culture and hiring those first couple of VPs. Like I, I want specialized people, I think. And, and the bet here seems to be the exact opposite, that if you can have a fully vertically integrated money firm, it's, it's better. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's a SPAC at the end of the road. So who, I don't know. It, this rubbed I, me I, the I, wrong I, way. I'm, am I wrong? I, I think VCs are good at raising money. So that's point A. And then B, I think they're very good at networking. And so they have the right consultants and helpers and recruiters and marketers and everything else that, you know, whether you're a Series C company or a SPAC, it oftentimes is going to be the same sort of relationships you need to grow. So I actually think it makes a lot more sense. Now, seed to SPAC is a little bit more extreme. My guess is they have specialties within the firm, though, right? And that's how most firms are still designed. You have folks who do seed, you have folks who do growth. That's not always the case. You know, we interviewed two partners at Index, Tara Cannon and uh, Nina Chejian. You know, they don't do that over at Index, right? Everyone does everything. Also, everyone does everything internationally as well. So they're looking at France deals. The European team is looking at deals in San Francisco, seed to growth. 
everything under the the sun. You know, I think the question is, is, is there actually any signal to specialization? I think that's true maybe in the in the market verticals. I'm not sure that's true in, in investing in general anymore. Well, we'll see. I mean, this is a cool idea. And if it does become the norm, then I think it's going to be a requirement for VCs to have a vehicle to help take companies public, though. At the same time, SPACs are still the, the uh, they're the crappy sibling of the, you know, going public world. And I, I, I don't think they're going to maintain their kind of current shine long term. And so I, I think I, this I'm still uh, bullish and I, I, I don't put them in that bucket. I will say the most interesting thing we're going to have to watch is the first time a, a VC backed SPAC SPACs itself. Okay, so uh, let's yes. call it self-flagellating investing. That's um, one when word they, for it. they spack themselves. It's the only. It's the only fans of AngelList. It's the AngelList of only fans. But but I do think that that's going to be a huge ethical concern going forward. Is like what happens when you spack your own liquidity? I'm gonna I'm gonna decipher that for everyone who didn't get it inside the nested jokes. Um, if you <laughs> if you are the VC who has the Russian dolls in- of of jokes, um, there's an only fans for that too. Danny, just 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 don't say OnlyFans for 15 seconds and I'll, I'll get everyone back on board. Here's what he's saying. Let's say that I'm first mark and I uh, invest into companies, you know, seed, I put some more money in the A and the B and the C and the D and I get them all the way to the point where they're ready to go public and they say, you know what, we don't want an IPO, we don't want a direct list, we really want to go public via a blank check company. And I go, ah, great, I'm first mark, I have one of those. Well, then you come into a bit of a conflict of interest. How do you price the company that's going public when you already own it? Maybe you have a board seat and now you're on the other side of the table on the entity that's taking it public. So you're going to have to have independent boards, independent pricing. There's going to be some conflicts there that are complicated. And as Danny and I have learned by reading many, many SPAC filings in the last couple of months, there's- I highly recommend you don't do. Yeah, please don't. There's tons of nuance about governance and shares and, 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 and pipes and so forth. And so it's going to be complex. It's not simple. It may be fast or the nutritional IPO, but it's not going to be simple. Now, when you're going to put that in a bucket because God forbid we talk more about SPACs, 30 seconds on Roots IPO. Danny, do you recall the Lemonade IPO from earlier this year? I do recall. What what stands out in your memory about that debut? Pricing, market trajectory, like, does anything stick out in your mind? Very fast uh, time to market. I think it was only, uh, what, a five or six-year-old company, you know, in, in, in the uh, renter's insurance space is sort of their b- bread and butter. And, you know, it was a pretty strong IPO. It jumped pretty heavily. And yep. it was very fast time, you know, founding to, to public markets. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, a couple other things. The valuation was pretty rich, just even kind of even going out. It was um, a pretty aggressively priced compared to its kind of revenue. And what we saw there was it was a strong multiple on its gross written premiums or how much kind of policy was writing out there in the marketplace. And we, this kind of repriced everybody in the insure tech space because suddenly everything looked cheap. Hippo, uh, another player that's kind of the same or in a similar space, raised a bunch of money and at the valuation, it just seemed really light compared to the public price that Lemonade had just got. So I was curious if we were going to see other players in the neo insurance space go public because if Lemonade just showed you what kind of valuation you can get, now is the time. And brrrm, we have another one going public. So Root is another neo insurance player focused on the automobile market with a Susan, the rental insurance space, kind of their second product they're bringing to market. I just got an eyeball from Danny. How bad was my French pronunciation? Yeah, I thought it was fine. Nice idea going on there. Okay. And so we got their S1 finally and got to learn a lot about this company that was previously valued at $3.65 billion, I think, in its last private valuation. And Danny, I want you to guess what its gap gross margin was in H1 2020. There's a point to this. I'm not just I'm not, I'm not just torturing you. There, there's, I have a reason for this. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, money man. Identify the revenues from Tajikistan in October of 2018. No, um, no, no, in, no, in no, pesos, no, 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 no,
uh, negative. That's you only said that because I gave you the option. <laughs> it was negative 3.4%. On an adjusted oh, basis, their gross margin rose to 7.4%. But they have a history of negative gross margins and they're going public. And maybe that's great. Maybe Root's a great company. Maybe, maybe it's going to do well. I'm not trying to diss on it. But I think that it's, that it's trying to go public while it's still this nascent of a business, I think goes to show how enthusiastic the public markets are. And that's, I think, the bigger story inside of Root's IPO. So we're going to be tracking this listing. Lots of stuff coming up about it. We're going to pay, pay close attention. But I think this shows the optimism on the listing side. Uh, now, what the buy side does, we'll see. But that's enough about that. There's more stuff on the site if you want to dig into the numbers. Uh, but I think we can leave that there and turn, Danny, to how to knock it off your couch if you want groceries. Take it away. We're talking about companies that are going public. Instacart, we found out as this share was going to press, raised $200 million at a $17.7 billion post with the existing investors doubling down again on the company at a new higher valuation. You know, we've talked about Instacart a lot this year. I feel like they've raised, I feel like they raise a lot of money every month. It's been, it has felt like that for a long, long time. Like, I feel like we talk about Instacart and food delivery and grocery delivery, like literally every day, but clearly Instacart doing super well, grocery deliveries skyrocketing in the, in the uh, post pandemic world, you know, kind of in line with, with, with uh, Postmates, which actually, you know, is in merger discussions with, with Uber they're going through the antitrust process. Uber actually published new docs showing that the company's operating finances are actually improving quite a bit, mostly because they have more volume and are keeping kind of expenses more flat, you know, so they're not, it's not linear, it's sublinear. So that's great for them. So I, I think, you know, Instacart's definitely on the bubble. I think we can expect it to go out, you know, sometime in the next couple of months, almost inevitably. It's interesting that they haven't yet. And I, I'm, I'm curious, like, sort of the reason, like, are they going to SPAC? Are they going to IPO, direct list? Uh, they actually are maybe a good example of a direct list uh, opportunity as a major consumer brand. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. That implies they had lots of cash. They might not. They, well, they were just profitable raised $200 in April. Bucks. They, they well, just, and then they just raised $200 million bucks. And, and similar but, to, but, like, Palantir. Um, Palantir didn't raise cash. I mean, they raised a, an, a, a VC round, you know, two months before they went uh, through their direct listing process. Okay. Um, maybe something similar will happen here. I, I think that this is one of the companies, obviously, to watch. And I have nothing else to say about uh, Instacart. All right. I got a couple of things. One, $200 million for this company isn't a lot of money. It's kind of a standard-sized round. And you don't keep raising money, usually, unless you have a reason for it. And so I presume they're going through it at a reasonable clip. And so I don't think they'll direct list. Now, if they are much more cash efficient than you and I might think, hell yeah, why not? They might direct list. That'd be really cool. But my presumption, given how regularly they raise, is that they've been using the money, and so they probably need more of it. And so if you're going to go out, go out. And so, uh, one more thing, which is, you know, we all know they were profitable in, I think, April of this year. The information reported they made about $10 million after losing $300 million in 2019. I asked the company, but I emailed them. I'm like, hey, did you guys have any other profitable months since then? And how much did you grow in Q3? And they ignored my questions and sent me over the release. <laughs> so uh, no response on the company about that. Uh, I, would, I would kill to know how they're doing in terms of profitability, because if they can turn this COVID bump into sustainable long-term profits, it's going to be a masterstroke for Instacart. I think that's exactly the pivot they're trying to make. And I, I think the challenge here is I think they're doing well. The question is, will they do well long-term? And I think there's a, a little bit of a magic of like, where, where exactly is the IPO window? To be able to show, like, look at how strong we are, look at how great these numbers are before the numbers change. Yeah. They might actually change and, and, and stay continue, or they may not. And that's sort of the bet you have to make as a company is, you know, when exactly do you want to go public and raise that money? Well, Buddha Palantir had a good year because of all the government contracts, and so they look fancy right now. So they went out when their numbers looked good. A lot of, I think it was, uh, was it Carvana that did the same thing? They went out before their COVID numbers hit. I mean, you can just time things well. 
And uh, that's not financial engineering. That's just not being stupid. To be clear, we're not dissing this. That's what we would do too if we were them. But there's a lot to follow here. I, I've been covering Instacart since they were adding individual markets inside of the Bay Area and Apuva, the CEO, would Facebook message me news. So like I've been covering this company for a long ass time and I'm very excited to see uh, what its numbers look like when we finally get to see them. But let's wrap up with one final story. Uh, a company, again, that we talk about, I swear to God, all the time. Airbnb. This week, we got some new cash burn numbers. Danny, I'm sure you've seen them. I'm kind of curious what you think about their kind of recent performance and their return to form. Yeah. So we had uh, the information gave us some information about the company. You know, the the company has lost about $1.2 billion over the last couple of quarters with with 850 million losses in just the first two quarters of 2020 alone. What I'm hearing, though, is that the company's actually recovered quite a bit in Q3 and mostly because People have shifted from a, a tourism-driven economy. is It's actually now a rental economy. Uh, yes. A lot of folks are doing long-term rents, um, which actually massively cuts down on cleaning costs. It actually solves a lot of problems for Airbnb. So people are getting two, three, four-month leases as opposed to a three- or four-night stay. And even though they may not have as many customers, those customers are now spending thousands and thousands of dollars in a way they weren't before. So from what I'm hearing is Airbnb is actually mostly recovered. In fact, in, I believe in some periods, depending on how you exactly cut the periods, they're actually doing better year over year. You know, So it, it, it's far better than I think most other tourism and travel related companies. Yeah. And so I, my guess is very similarly, the company's trying to figure out when exactly is the numbers kind of proving that they're in a good shape so they're able to go public. The CEO has repeatedly said that they are looking at it. They, they sort of never give a timeline. I do think it's coming much sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree with that. I was digging back into the story today. I wrote kind of a chronology of Airbnb's kind of like like decline from grace and recovery because it's been a kind of a yo-yo story during 2020. And I was going back and reading and reporting about the options issue, which is that a lot of the options like expire at Airbnb sometime this year. I heard it's November of this year, uh, which I can't fully fact check because I don't actually have the documents. But if that's the case, expect them to go public before then, which would be now that we just learned that it is actually October right now, newsflash to Danny and I, that's next month. So probably pretty quick. And I'm excited about this one. These numbers are going to be fascinating because I don't think we've ever seen a company suffer such a gut punch and then turn around so quickly and then be ready to go public. So on the back of Q3, I presume, Danny, and some hype about Q4 perhaps is what they're going to go public on. But I think we're way over time. It always happens when it's just Danny and I because we just ramble and tell lame jokes. But anyways, this has been Equity. Uh, We care about you all and we're back Monday morning. Bye.